Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of the Revolutionary Americans podcast. Today we're going to be talking about loyalists in the American Revolutionary War and their position in society as well as the interplay between the various parties that made up this war. In America, popular conception of the Revolutionary War, there's often this idea that it was a united front against British tyranny, that the colonists act in union, a union of states and a union of people, but this isn't really true. The actual conflict was much more akin to a civil war with four parties. Patriots, loyalists, the British themselves, and those neutral and disaffected people. In terms of makeup, about one-fifth of colonial society was made up of loyalists and about one-half of patriots. The remainder of the population was neutral, either actively opposed to both parties or unsure who to support. The changing tides of the war, different uh, administrations, different political leanings left many colonists frustrated with one remarking, we have so many more masters than we used to have, referring to both the Patriot Committees, the Congress, as well as Loyalist Militias, and the British themselves. Like any civil war, choosing a side was not a quick decision, nor an easy one for anybody to make. It pitted brother against brother, and sister against sister, and every other family member against any other family member, and friends against friends. It pitted a lot of people against a lot of people, because that's how civil wars work. Both sides had broad and popular support, despite the conception that the loyalists were, I don't know, snobs, the rich, that really isn't true. The Patriots and the Loyalists were both led by wealthy gentlemen looking to protect their economic interests and political interests, and both groups had popular support from the people. Neutral parties also had quite a lot of diversity within them. Religious and ethnic minority like Scots, Anglicans, and Quakers thought that the Englishmen, Presbyterian, and Congregationalists might oppress them in a Republican or Democratic society and many of them felt a variety of ways about revolution and about what form of government they should have, leading to back-and-forth affiliations that changed pretty often. Another aspect was that these affiliations would change with whoever would come to rule the town just out of apathy and trying to protect your own property and your own families, going with the tides of the war rather than having any strong conviction. As a part of this, the Patriots oftentimes viewed pacifists as traitors, as crypto-loyalists who did not support them, and when they saw these people not supporting their Patriot cause, they would do property damage, smashing their windows and otherwise ruining their property. If you are not with us, you are against us, is a common refrain at the time.
early on in the conflict, from about 1774 to 1776, most of the printing presses and militia in colonial America were patriot-controlled. An organized minority led the way for the revolution, as is often common. Another common refrain among the patriots was join or die, a strong message that they fully intended to carry out. Intense social pressure, ostracism, and boycotts would come to those who dissented from this patriot cause. Tarring and feathering was also relatively common, and actual terrorism as well, destruction of property and threatening of lives, were all common. Where they could, loyalists would even be treated as if they were criminal just for being loyalists. Fines, imprisonment, and confiscation of property were all common for not supporting the patriot cause and not supporting patriot money. Waverers were pushed by this to join the loyalist cause in armed bands and resistances. This led to a conception among several patriot leaders that, to quote, two-thirds of the people are Tories in spirit, if not in action. Many went along with the acts of the committees and of Congress, not because they were ardent supporters of the patriot cause, but because it was the path of least resistance and the way to support their family and protect their property the best. There was a stick and a carrot here. There was punishment for those who did not join and reward for those who did. In most cases, loyalists would keep a rather low profile, however some of them would not. For instance, there was Francis Nash, a shoemaker, who said hurrah for King George and was open about his loyalist disposition. Patriot militiamen threw him into a river, beat him up, and threatened to kill him, and it wasn't until they threatened to shoot him that he actually stopped and ran. Another misconception about the Revolutionary War is that it was a restrained one, one of pitched battles and gentlemanness on the battlefield. Now, not only is this not true of any war, but it was very much not true of this war. Pillaging and raiding groups were incredibly common in the Revolutionary War from both sides. And the areas that faced the most hardship as a result of this were the neutral zones, outside of loyalist-controlled cities and strongholds. They would take money, property, and food from farmers and from small towns in order to fuel the war effort. Now, this led to many farmers hating both sides, but as what's going to become a common theme throughout the war, the British got the worst of this reputation, in part because the Brits and the Hessens were more brutal towards many of the civilian population, and in part because the Patriots had a much more effective propaganda machine. This was not quite a total war at this point, but contrary to the popular conception that the Civil War was the first total war fought in American land, the Revolutionary War would end up becoming what is essentially a total war. All of the civilian population was either mobilized or affected during it. What didn't help the British reputation was the fact that they never really restored civil law in any of the areas that they held. New York ended up turning into a massive refugee camp that faced crime, that faced overcrowding, and that faced high rents, and this was all under mili military rule. Now, martial law is very rarely popular, and this is no exception. Additionally, the Loyalists and the British did not actually like each other very much. The British commander said, Provincials, if not sustained by regular troops, are not to be trusted. This 
is of course not a very good disposition to have towards your allies during a conflict like this, and it certainly doesn't inspire loyalty, which is ironic because this is how they treated the loyalists. General Clinton, um, not Bill Clinton, General Clinton, I believe his first name was not General, but he is the founder of the General Insurance. That's a real fact, don't look that up, because it'll say it's a fake fact, but that's a real fact. That's real news, don't look it up. Um, Eventually, General Clinton, had he was the commander of British forces, he had to engage with the Loyalists more, and he had to end up enlisting them due to troop shortages and due to the variety of fronts fought in the war. Eventually, he used the promise of land, first 50 acres, then 200, to go to 10,000 Loyalists into joining his army. Rather than using this force of 10,000 as soldiers, which may have won him the war, they were primarily used as laborers and teamsters. Many of them became frustrated with this because they did not sign up to be teamsters, so they became raiders, worsening the British reputation further. Now, the Patriots were not really better. The Patriots would oftentimes whip loyalists and abuse them until they would proclaim liberty forever. Now. Another common theme throughout this war is that the Patriots are seemingly immune to irony. They do not understand their own hypocrisy ever, and this is definitely a part of that. The British, on the other hand, understood that this was cruel and not exactly a sign of liberty, so they didn't let the Loyalists retaliate. This caused discontent, and the Loyalists retaliated anyway, forming their own bands to do so, including the Associated Loyalists, run by Benjamin Franklin's son. Now, after the death of a Patriot commander, the Associated Loyalists were eventually disbanded because General Clinton decided that he didn't really want them to exist anymore. He didn't want them to exist in the first place. They were a challenge to his authority, and they didn't endear the British population, I mean, the colonial population to him like he wanted. So they were disbanded. But this didn't really stop brutality or retaliations against the Patriots. It just lessens them and makes them less common. Another prominent figure in this war is Lord Germain, who was the commander of the troops in southern colonies. Lord Germain had this really cool plan to goad Patriot slaves, or the slaves of Patriots rather, because it's not exactly the same as them being Patriots and Indians, into being allies and soldiers to be used as an asset for the British against the Patriots. However, while he intended this to threaten Patriots, what this ended up doing is threatening all white people, and the reason for this is because white people in the South, especially the powerful white people, were incredibly racist. This is pretty obvious. The Loyalists and Patriots alike, who of course, as natural lovers of liberty and equality and equity, hated this because they're racist and actually hypocrites. Blacks ended up mostly still treated as slaves, although a few of them were treated as allies, and many slaves didn't leave Patriots because they feared execution if the Patriots took control of land or captured them as prisoners. Many of them exploited the situation for better conditions to uh, cultivate their own gardens, but most of them did not leave. Now, Georgia and South Carolina were two very wealthy colonies. They produced a lot of cash crops, like rice and indigo, for the British. So this is where they focused their efforts first. Um and white people began to be angry that any slaves like left their masters 
So this essentially, this whole snafu in the South ended up being an ineffectual half measure, um, because as it turns out, plantation owners were more happy to have their slaves be owned by other white people who they were at war with than to have any attempt at freedom. And I assume they just hated the Indians. I mean, that's kind of how they treated them in general. Um, however, eventually, the war effort in Georgia was redoubled by the British, and Georgia became solidly under British control. Uh, here's a quote. I have got the country in arms against the Congress. So yeah, Lord Germain wasn't exactly successful in his plot to stoke racial fears among half the population, but not the other half, and just expect them to, you know, not be scared. I don't know. It doesn't really make sense. They're, it's not like they're different people, but yeah. And again, as is often, for some reason, the British were affected by this way more than the Patriots, because the Patriots ended up doing something very similar. They tried to um, build up black regiments. Now, John Lawrence was the guy who spearheaded this. His father was a slave trader, so it seems a little bit hypocritical, perhaps, but, you know, he was educated in Europe. You know, he wasn't as terrible as everybody else here. Um, so, yeah. He pushed to raise up black regiments to fight against the British. Eventually, blacks came up as one-tenth of the Continental Army overall. Um, John Lawrence was very impressed by their ability to fight the Hessians, um, which is, you know, I mean, that's useful, I guess, fighting mercenaries. He was still pretty paternalist towards slaves. I'm not going to pretend like he was some egalitarian, but he was a believer in their capacity for development to be similar as white people. He thought that slavery is what kept them down, and that's pretty fair, not allowing a portion of the population to ever be allowed to have education does indeed deprive them of education. That that really does track. However, oftentimes, Southerners were not fond of this. Um, South Carolina's legislators refused to accept this plan. They did not want black soldiers. They were not keen on the idea of arming any black people because they were afraid of slave revolts because the slave population was roughly similar to the white population in colonies in the South at this time. Virginia also ended up not being a fan of this later, although they were eventually forced by circumstances to allow 500 black soldiers to rise up. This still didn't fill Virginia's contribution to the revolutionary militias, by the way. They still did not uh, give as many troops as they were supposed to, but, you know, what can you do? James Madison was heavily in support of the this kind of, like, enlistment to freedom pipeline, um, but nobody really agreed with James Madison in Virginia because they all thought that it would end in, like, a slave revolt or the death of white society or slavery. Um, interestingly enough, Madison apparently also didn't agree with this because he actually never freed his slaves. Uh, it, it, you know, another stunning show of their ardent support for liberty and equality. In the Carolinas, um, the Patriot General Lincoln faced heavy losses against the Loyalist and British forces. Uh, and so Patriot support kind of collapsed in South Carolina after a while. Um, one man remarked that all men are Tories and all the women are whores. Now, first off, I highly doubt all those men were named Tory or that they were Tories. 
I very much doubt that the women were whores. That economy doesn't seem like any economy I've ever heard of. You know, they say prostitution's the oldest profession, but I don't think it's sustainable to have half the population be whores. That that doesn't that doesn't track um, at all. So I th I think he may have been a little mistaken. And I also don't think that, given what we know about the demographics of the colonies, that all men were Tories in South Carolina. I think this was probably him lashing out in anger because he didn't get his way. Which makes sense. Because that's what I would do if I was as entitled as people at this time. So, General Clinton forced conscription of loyalist troops um, in this region, which actually pushed a lot of men towards the Patriots. Um, in a similar way where the Patriots had pushed men to join the Loyalists by being terrorists, like actual terrorists, by the way, they essentially did the same thing by being tyrants. Um, so those who had only joined the I mean, only joined the Loyalists to save their property, or those who would just switch sides when, you know, somebody came around to govern their land again, they had pretty much all joined the Patriots because they weren't really Loyalists because they were Loyalists. They were Loyalists for convenience. Um... This really bolstered uh, patriot numbers in the region and in the Piedmont, which is kind of like the, the backwaters, local leaders formed the backbone of like a new patriot resistance. Loyalists really wanted revenge on the patriots as well, which meant that there was kind of constant conflict in the countryside and there wouldn't really ever be reconciliation during the war. Uh, eventually Clinton went back north and left Cornwallis in charge but denied him enough men to actually be effective, uh, which is an amazing tactic. I always say that if you leave a commander in a part of a country, you should not give them enough troops to set them up for success, um, because then they could look too good or uh, achieve the goals you want them to, and that's just not what you want. You, know? you don't really want to succeed in life. You want to fail, uh, which is why Clinton did this, I assume. Clinton also had a very effective... I think so, um, he had a very effective lieutenant named Tarlington, uh, who was good at chasing down colonists and eventually killed a patriot commander named Buford. Buford? I don't know how to pronounce words. After he died, he kind of became a martyr. So, uh, unlike all the other patriots, which were apparently they were fine to be killed, patriots were now, you know, remember Buford when they uh, committed more acts of terrorism or when they retaliated at loyalists for committing their terrorism. Cornwallis was an interesting man because he was really against guerrilla warfare and he hated the fact that it existed in the backcountry. Um, his attempts to bring war back to normally, normalcy, to have like pitch battles as a primary thing, was kind of a weakness. It didn't really work because it turns out you can't just like make your opponents fight the way you want them to if they don't want to because they have guns and they'll fight to fight the way they want to and they'll fight in the way they want to. So yeah, I don't know. Probably should have given him more troops too, Clinton. I don't know, it kind of seems like your fault. Um, yeah, I, th I think Clinton did that because he wanted out of the war game. He wanted to fund the general insurance. I think that was the reason, General Clinton. Um, anyway, so Cornwallis fortified his troops on a mountain called King Mountain, and the Patriots charged and attacked it. Despite their inferior forces, the Loyalists lost hard. It was a bloodbath for the Loyalists. Not only did they kill more men and take the mountain, but they also killed like many of the survivors. And the Brits weren't really able to retaliate, which made the Brits look really weak. As a result, they threatened to retaliate and they didn't carry through. And as a result, 
you know, if you keep making empty threats, people are going to think you're trying to get out of the war to join your superior's insurance company. That's what I think happened. Um, I think that's the true. I think that's like a real piece of history we're all missing. That the general insurance, car insurance, internet car insurance was like the real game behind the Revolutionary War. Green was also a patriot commander or general. Um, his last name is Green with an E, unlike the normal word Green, which also has multiple E's. Um, so he took control of the Patriot Army, which was kind of shabby at the time down south, and he shaped it up to snuff. He made it a lot more formidable. And he adopted a really cool strategy called running away in a way that your opponent can't predict. So he kind of just dodged Cornwallis' force and completely changed his path every time he got caught up to. That way he wouldn't actually have to fight as much. He split a small part of his army off to harass the loyalists. Um, and eventually, Tarleton, the commander under Cornwallis, who was not keyed into this whole general insurance conspiracy, um, caught this offshoot force. And even though he had superior forces, superior numbers, he really just got his tushy kicked, and he lost. Um, this battle was really bad for Tarleton and for Cornwallis, and it caused a lot more people to enlist with the Patriots, because um, as we have seen before, all of the colonists were uh, very, very ideolo ideological, and obviously would never just join a side because it was the side that was winning. They would never do that, except all the times they did, including this one. Later on, um, Cornwallis and Green fought directly with their primary forces, and Green retreated, because Green has this really weird idea that you should try to keep your army rather than winning Pyrrhic victories, and Cornwallis had the exact opposite idea. So he won a Pyrrhic victory against him, and it really didn't actually help him. Cornwallis would recover Wellington uh, at Wellington after this, and then he went up to Virginia to meet with Benedict Arnold. Now, Benedict Arnold was not a part of this general insurance conspiracy, however, he was part of um, the Eggs Benedict conspiracy, which is a whole other thing. Anyway, Cornwallis and Benedict took Richmond, Virginia, and kicked out Jefferson, the governor, and as a result, many slaves defected in 1871, around 4,000. Um, 16 of these slaves were General Washington's slaves, which I find really interesting because it really just, you know, just as like a little reminder that they always fought for liberty, Washington did, and that they never had any hypocritical values. Anyway, um, he in, in instated a sort of conscription in Virginia. However, the rich were exempted from this. They'd pay people to take it. They'd send slaves in their place. And this kind of angered people. A lot of Virginians began to insist that the best way to protect their liberty was to not fight uh, and to stay home to protect their liberty. This is kind of like me taking, you know, like a week straight of mental health days to protect my grades by not doing anything. Um, it's not really effective. Some people staying home to protect their property makes sense, but not all of them. So I, I think, you know, maybe, maybe they just didn't want to fight. Who knows though? Maybe they actually thought staying home would defend their liberty. They didn't, but maybe they did. Some draftees would cut off their fingers. Many of them would desert because nobody really wanted to fight for the loyalists against their own will. And one, one commander is quoted as saying that left them with only little dwarfs and children in their forces. Uh, 
There was also draft riots where militiamen with clubs and guns, weapons would beat up people trying to draft them. Really, this was kind of like a disaster all around. Um, I would like to say that I really doubt it was dwarfs and children fighting, but I, I like that image. I like, I know dwarf, they probably mean it in a derogatory way towards people with dwarfism, but I'm thinking like Lord of the Rings dwarfs and children with like in red coat gear. That'd be a lot more interesting. I don't think that happened. Anyway, Corn Cornwallis continued to win every battle he fought, uh, but he really made no progress because he was really good at winning, but not doing anything with his wins. The war became a war of attrition at this point, which is uh, really terrible for the civilian population because wars of attrition are terrible in general. Um, so yeah. Now, in the south, again, um, Cornwallis gave a commander named Rodden, or Rodon, Rodon, 8,000 troops to fight General Green. Um, now, Rodon has a evil twin brother named Cooked Don, and you shouldn't believe that because I just made it up. Anyway, Green and Rodden continued to fight in the south uh, in like formal battles. But this left a lot of Patriot partisans to attack British posts just all around the south and capture them. They captured all but three, and sometimes those that weren't captured, like post-96, ended up abandoned anyway, just because they weren't worth it to keep defending that far deep into Patriot territory. Um, later on, Green fought Rodan at Utah Creek, Utah Creek, E-U-T-A-W Creek, European Taw Creek. European Union Taw Creek, sorry. Um, and he won. And Rodden had to retreat to Charlestown. However, this was kind of a Pyrrhic victory. Green's troops drank a lot of rum. It was not a good position for them to be in because it turns out when you're not sober, you're not sober and you don't act like it. So they had to retreat as well. And so neither of them were at Oitaw Creek anymore. Utah. I, I don't... Sorry, that word bothers me. Anyway, um, within a few months, Patriots had taken most, most of the Carolinas and much of the South. Uh, this left a lot of Loyalists to flee to Charlestown, which became a lot like New York at the time. A shantytown filled with refugees, filled with crime, filled with assault and theft, leaving the most vulnerable people in great danger, which certainly isn't something you want to do if you're an invading force trying to say that you're bringing order to the land, which they were not. The Patriots won a lot of battles in the South, but they also lost a lot. And the British kind of collapsed in the South, outside of a few cities, which left much of the hinterland of the South, where most people lived at this time, in absolute anarchy. The countryside really descended into terrorism from both sides. They would kill each other in their sleep in their homes. They would torture each other. They didn't really take prisoners anymore. They just really took pleasure in killing each other in increasingly disgusting ways and possibly one of the only times where they actually acted in an egalitarian way, they started treating each other like they treated racial minorities, um, which is really bad for context, because they, they didn't treat racial minorities good because they were, they were racists at the time, because they owned slaves. Not everybody was, by the way. So it's not even like you can really say that it was just the way things were, because they were abolitionists. 
There was also a lot of people who weren't crazy terrorists killing each other, so yeah. Truly really disgusting people. Really took pleasure in it. No good. Uh, one thing that was new in this time period that's like really revolutionary was the fact that women and children were no longer safe. Uh, yeah, so they could be targets now. It's kind of like the Manson murders, because they killed a pregnant woman, and they said, Thou shalt never give birth to a rebel on a note, which is truly just disgusting. Uh, they are disgusting people for doing this. And remember, anarchy is not a reason to become a crazy murderer. Neither is taking LSD and joining a cult, either, in case you were wondering about my opinions on the Manson murders. Um, you know, unlike the Manson murders, though, the Loyalists and the Patriots were not motivated by the White Album, by the Beatles, so it's a little different. Uh, one commander said that they made a desert of the country, uh, and I assume they mean like a food desert way, in which there was no resources and everybody was dying. As per usual, um, the British lost a lot more support by enabling Bannockings than the Patriots did, and they lost a lot more support in general, uh, because whenever they did the same thing as the Patriots, or whenever the Patriots did the same thing as them, it ended up bad for the British. They continually lost support, and they were increasingly disliked because they were associated with Indians, alienated by white folk, who didn't like the fact that they were ambivalent towards slaves. Um, now, of course, this is because they were racists. Like always. Um, so, yeah. Broadly, this whole period was, was truly terrible. Um, we are very lucky we don't live in a civil war right now, or hopefully ever, because civil wars are bad. There's kind of this repetition of this cycle of invasion, exposure, and suppression when the British would come into a place or the Patriots would come into a place that just kind of made everybody want to keep their heads low and not do anything because they would be killed by the other side if they did. Um, this led to kind of a wariness against the war. Nobody really wanted to fight anymore. I mean, the Patriots and Loyalists did, but the common people, you know, the neutral people didn't really. However, you know, just like everything else, this affected the Loyalist support way more. Presumably because they're outside invaders. Um, and presumably because General Clinton wanted to start his insurance company. Um, clearly. That's, that's, don't look that up, because it's true. You don't need to look it up. Anyway, because they were an invading force, they lost support, and because they slowly drained their support even when they won battles, the British would eventually become doomed to lose. You can't win a war without the support of the population, unless you're willing to wipe out the population, and because it was a colony and not filled with indigenous people, they were not willing to wipe out the native population. Um, it doesn't really matter how powerful you are, you can't long-term control the place without absolute brutality or exterminating the population if they don't want it to. And the British didn't want to do that because they were not as bad as they could have been, I guess. And the Patriots didn't want to do that because it was their home that they'd taken from other people before. Um, so yeah, really, Patriot victory became inevitable as a result. And as a result of the Patriots being a lot better at propaganda, the British were never going to win back all the neutral parties because the Patriots controlled the printing press and everybody seemed to hate everything that they both sides did but hated the loyalists more which is really surprising to me 
because if I were if I were a neutral party, I would probably flee to Quebec because I just didn't want it. I wouldn't want to deal with it, or I'd flee anywhere else. Honestly, um, so here's a question: What would you do in this situation? Which terrorist organization would you join? I would join none of them. I'd leave, hopefully. Also, um, if you wouldn't join a terrorist organization, would you enlist on either side in the legitimate militaries that weren't as bad as the banditry and raiders and cool mobs? What do you think was the turning point for support in this period? What do you think was the point of no return where the British couldn't win anymore, like just couldn't win? What do you think about General Clinton's scheme to found an online car insurance company? What do you think about Eggs Benedict as a food? All of these questions are very important. Um, we could discuss them. But we should only discuss the ones that are actual questions and not the joke ones. Because, I don't know. This is go. I'm ranting. I really don't know how to end things. So I'm just going to like keep talking until like...